0: I don't know if you caught it, but last night was uh, the State of the Union address. And there was a, a lot of reference to our historical moment, which talks about the war in Ukraine. Sort of the, I don't know, are, are we getting into um, World War Three? Let's talk of our fractious nation sort of coming out of a global pandemic. And Biden himself, he raised this question, like, how will this historical moment be recorded? How will the story be written? You can almost cue that Hamilton soundtrack. No doubt any historian looking back on this period will reference some of the big actors on the world stage right now. Biden, Putin, Zelensky, even Trump. But as I was thinking today about our news becoming history, I was reminded of a concept that I learned recently called moral ecology. Essentially, uh, our character and our choices, sorry, this applies to the Bidens and the Putins and the Zelenskys as well, but our character and our choices, it's not grown in a vacuum. We are the product and the byproduct of the environments uh, and the communities that we grow up in and that we indwell. If you want a great visual of this, um, take a look at this picture uh, juxtaposing Zelensky and Putin. Uh, I want you to think about what these pictures say about these men and the kind of the and the kind of choices that they're making even now. The people that we surround ourselves with or don't surround ourselves with, they go a long way in explaining who we are and what we do, what we fight for and even how we fight for them. Martin Luther King Jr. is an excellent example of this principle. MLK is sometimes portrayed as the face of the Civil Rights Movement. He was an important and influential leader, to be sure, right? It's fair to call him a hero. But the Civil Rights Movement was not a one-man movement. It involved many people. And even if we just zero on uh, Martin Luther King's face, to, to know the man, we've got to know the community that he grew out of. We need to, if we're ever going to make sense of MLK, we need to sort of understand his moral ecology. MLK wasn't produced in a vacuum. He wasn't produced in a classroom or from a textbook. He grew out of the African-American church. This was his moral ecology. If you don't understand the moral ecology uh, that he grew up in, you won't won't understand him. These two things are in some ways inseparable. You can think of it, too, sort of like an iceberg. We all know that sort of like an iceberg is like one-tenth, like the visible tenth of the entire thing. King, in some ways, was like a highly visible figure of a much bigger iceberg. Right? He took down a Titanic of sorts. He, he humbled our nation. He sunk segregation. He produced waves that affected radical positive change. But this is my point. If you want to understand the man, MLK, sort of the tip of the iceberg, you need to know about the other nine-tenths beneath the surface. You need to understand the community that gave rise, supported, and sustained him. 'Cause there just isn't an MLK without the black church. And there is no salt and light. There's really no figure in history that is able to to do what they do, for good or for ill, apart in some ways from the community that birthed it and sustained it and supported it. You all tracking with me? For the past six weeks, we've been making the case that in order to live the good life, say life to the fullest, to live a fully human life, you need church. Let me just sort of recap where we've come from. Number one, you were made for relationships and you were saved for relationships too. Trying to find life outside of relationships, trying to find it outside of community is like a fish trying to find life outside of a fishbowl. It's just not going to work. The good life is found within the context of community. Two, joining a church and participating in weekly worship is your best defense against the lies of the devil. Lies that sound a lot like you do you or do whatever makes you happy. Write your own rules. Never settle. Lies like these are a lot more believable when we're on our own. But these lies, they lose potency. Sort of, They, they, lose, uh, they have a lot less purchase when we're in community and we're centered, uh, a community that is centered on the truth of who Jesus is. When we sort of practice church, we're not just hearing about the centrality of God. We're actually rehearsing it as we sort of step out of the center to the side. And we acknowledge that there's someone else who should be at the center of our lives. Number three, we can't grow in the darkness, but only in the light. When we live in the light of Christian community, our sins, blind spots and shame, they get exposed to the radical love and grace of Jesus. In the light, we see that we're worse than we think we are, but we also see that we're more loved than we ever imagined. Number four, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are not your own and you're not on your own anymore. You've been baptized into a body. You've been adopted into a family. If God is your father, then the church is your mother and you've got a bunch of brothers and sisters, too. The benefits of the Christian life are not found outside the family of God, but within it. What's more, it's within the household of God, sort of within the, the context of this family that you and I, we, we, we learn what it means to grow up into the family name for us to become more and more like Jesus. Number five, being joined to a body like this is beautiful, but it's messy too. We can choose our friends, but we can't choose our family. And we've been joined to people that we didn't necessarily choose, what God has chosen for us. But even when we do make choices about whom to be with and whom to love, as in a marriage, we quickly discover that we're joined to someone who is capable of great good, but also who has tragic flaws as well. What's true of us as individuals is true of the church, which is just humanity in some ways writ large. Now, God calls the church his bride, even though she doesn't always act like it. In fact, Scripture says she sometimes plays the whore. But in order to love the church, we must first appreciate how God loves the church. He meets her where she's at. He meets us where we're at. And he doesn't leave her or us there. He's deeply committed to the church and to us. He isn't blind to our flaws, nor is he repulsed by them. But his love is a love that makes us beautiful. And this brings us to tonight, point number six. When we're in a community of love, like the church, we are empowered to be salt and light. This is sort of our moral ecology. And not only does the church empower salt and lightness, it then in turn enables us to give a watching and hungry world a little glimpse of heaven right here on earth. A little glimpse, a little taste of what's to come. We're all of us sort of united to God and to one another, right? Our churches can be a reflection of that in part. We won't do it perfectly, but we can do it in part. We can be salt and light. I want you to look at Matthew 5, 13 to 16 again with me. Our passage begins, you are the salt of the earth, and it continues, you are the light of the world. Now, the yous and these verses are actually (laughs) y'alls. Um... I just got back from South Carolina where you hear this wonderful word a lot, right? Y'all. You hear it throughout Matthew 5 as well. The second person plural pronoun, right? It permeates this passage. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Now, why is that significant? Why is it important to emphasize this? What this means is that the Christian life is not something that you do on your own. Being salt and light is not something that you do on your own. Right? Being salt and light is not an individualistic enterprise. It is not a personal mission statement. It is a corporate calling. Being salt and light is something that we do together. It's something that we do as a campus ministry here at UVM. It's something that we do as members of local churches here in Burlington, Vermont. It's something that we do as a body of believers that are scattered throughout the world, across the face of the earth. Why is it important to read these yous as y'alls? Well, if you think that being salt and light is simply up to you, just something that you alone are supposed to do, you're easily going to feel overwhelmed. You'll get burned up and burned out. You'll be discouraged by what appears to be a, a small drop in a big ocean. Right? Who am I, if I'm just a little fleck of salt, what, what am I against such a, a big, corrupt world? If I'm just a tiny little candle, what am I right against all of the darkness? But when you read these yous as y'alls, you see that you're not alone. You'll remember that the Christian life is not lived alone and was never meant to. You'll begin to see strength in numbers. And you'll draw nourishment and encouragement, strength and support from other salt and light figures around you. I want you to think in terms of a moral ecology. But look at these verses again. When Jesus says that y'all are the salt of the earth and y'all are the light of the world, he's not emphasizing where we are from. It's not like we're the salt from the earth or the light from the world. He's emphasizing who or what we are for. In other words, y'all are salt for the earth. Y'all are salt, or you all are light for the world. You see, salt and light are change agents. Salt and light, they transform what they touch. What's more, salt and light are extremely useful in a wide variety of settings. Take salt, for example. Salt is a powerful preservative. To this day, we use it to cure meats and to pickle vegetables, et cetera. But not only is salt a preservative, it has medicinal properties as well. You'll find it in hospitals, you'll find it in spas. When I get a sore foot, my foot goes into a bath full of Epsom salt. Or if I have an infection, right? I'll, or a sore throat, I'll gargle with salt. Maybe you do too. Right? Salt cleanses and it heals. But salt's also an additive. Just think about a pinch of salt that you would put on a, a steak or some corn on the cob. Right? Salt has this, this power to take what is good, take what is present, and to, to draw it out. Right? To accentuate flavor. To make it pop. This... Teensy material, it is packed with power and potential. And light is too. See, we can use a light to spotlight what is good, but we can also use light to spotlight what is bad. Right? To, to expose injustice and to call attention to what needs change. Light can illuminate a dark room. It can show the way to go. I think of a lighthouse or a flashlight. It gives warmth. It causes things to grow. Protecting, engaging, blessing, transforming. These are some of the things that salt might do. And this, Jesus says, is what's to be true of you and is true of you. If you're a follower of me, he says, this is who you are. This is what you are called to do. He's not saying, hey, maybe someday you will be salt or you, you could be salt. He says, you are. This is who you are. This is what you were made for. This is what you do. You are the salt of, you are the salt for the earth. You are the light of, you are the light for the world. And this brings up an obvious but an important point. And one that Jesus goes out of his way to highlight and underscore. If this is to be true, right, in order to be effective, salt has to leave the salt shaker. And light can't be hidden. It needs to shine. If salt never leaves the salt shaker, it's good for nothing. It's worthless. So too is salt that loses its saltiness. In verse 13, Jesus makes this explicit. He says, salt that is not salty or light that doesn't shine is good for nothing. Salt and light must be in the world, but not of it. And the same goes for all followers of Jesus. We too need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to be different for goodness sake. What does this mean, practically speaking? It means that as important as it is for you to gather on Sundays or like we're doing here on Wednesdays, we can't stay sort of in a salt shaker forever. You've probably heard me say this before, but living the Christian life is a lot like breathing. If all we do is inhale and we never exhale, we pass out and we die. Fair, right? If all we do is come in and we never go out, we die. And there's a spiritual analogy, right? Like spiritual death comes to those who just want to sort of come in and never go out into the world. I know that there are some Christians who try to live like this. Instead of engaging the world, they retreat from it. They're like salt that never leaves the salt shaker, or like light that is kept under a basket. See, Jesus sends us out into the world precisely because there is rot and decay, because there is darkness and suffering. But instead of moving towards these things, there are folks who shrink from it. Maybe they're afraid of getting hurt, or maybe they're afraid of getting sick, or maybe they're afraid of being contaminated or corrupted. Maybe they're afraid of losing their saltiness. So rather than permeating the world, they run from it. Rather than blessing the world, they sort of form a holy huddle and lob bombs at it. These are those who are breathed in, but who never breathe out. And Jesus says, that's worthless. That's good for nothing. But there are those who breathe out, and they never come in. Just as deadly, it's deadly for you to sort of inhale and never exhale, but it's also deadly, right, to exhale and never inhale. I see Christians who try to do this too. These two pass out and die. Interestingly enough, I think fear motivates them just as much as it motivates the other crowd. But it's not fear so much of the world so much as fear of being seen as different from it. These are Christians who are afraid of standing out. Not... Afraid of the culture so much as being seen as countercultural. Again, Jesus says that's precisely the point. That's precisely why salt and light is is, is all about. It's about being in but not of. Jesus says it's precisely because you're in the world but you're not like the world that you can actually bless it. It's precisely because you're in it but not of it. Because that, that you're distinct from it. That you can help heal it and transform it and protect it and renew it. If you become just like it, you're good for nothing. But here's the kicker. In order for you to be in it but not of it. In order to enter the world and not lose your saltiness. In order to penetrate the darkness and to keep your your candle lit. In order to live the Christian life, y'all, you need to breathe. You need to breathe in and you need to breathe out. You need to come in, and you need to go back out. And this in and out dynamic is meant to characterize not just your physical life, but in some sense your spiritual life as well. Now what happens if and when we do this? When we don't keep our saltiness to ourselves, sort of just never going out, and we don't lose it either, sort of just lost out in the world. What happens when we retain it? Well, here's what we can expect as surely as salt has taste, y'all will give people a foretaste of heaven here on earth. And as surely as light gives sight, you will help give people a glimpse of a community that is yet to come. That's coming down the pike. Where people from every tribe and nation and language right, are united around worship of Jesus. You can give people a glimpse of that right here, right now. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. Well, how? He says, it's by the way that you love one another. Now, when Jesus says this, he's speaking to his disciples only. He's not talking to a crowd. He's saying, the world's going to know that you are my disciples. They're going to get a... A little taste, a little glimpse of the truth of who I am by the ways that you and the church love each other. The way that the world is going to taste and see the truth of Jesus and that we are his followers, it's not by the books that we write. It's not by the debates we win. It's not by, I don't know, fill in a blank. It's going to be by the way that we love one another. It's going to be by the way that we love those in our churches. This place of unlikely friendship where people from across the aisles are learning to relate to one another in ways that we were always meant to. Uh, This place of unlikely friendship where strangers become friends and even enemies become family. It's in in a community where we don't run from our problems or hide them, but we expose them. Expose them to the radical love and grace of, of Jesus. We will show it, by the way, we love those who are radically different from, other, uh, radically different from us. Some of them who are, are just right across the aisle. We didn't choose these people, but God did, which means he chose us together. Right? This is the kind of a community where imperfectly, but truly and in part, we can love those from every nation and tribe and people and language. As we stand before a throne and we sing with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to, to he who sits on the throne, right to the Lamb. Here's my point, one of them. If you want to be salt and light, you've got to join yourself to Jesus, which means in the same breath, joining his church. Because this is the moral ecology that gives rise to salt and light. It's, it, it starts here and it grows out from here. Sort of radiating, breathing, pulsing in and out. In and out. What might this look like in practice? I'll close here. I think salt light looks like you being part of a church body, but also part of your campus, part of your city when you graduate. Even now, right? It looks like you having a Christian friend, but not just having Christian friends. It looks like being an RUF, but also being in a fraternity or sorority, a sports team, an acapella group, theater, rally-thon, ROTC. It means being an RUF, but also being a TA or an RA, working a part-time job or serving X, Y, and Z organization. When I think of salt and light, I think of you in this room who aren't obnoxious about your faith, but you're not hiding it either. Right, you're invitational. And when folks ask what makes you tick, you don't hesitate to talk to them about Jesus. I think about you. I think about you in this room who winded up at a party where everybody's getting wasted. But instead of getting wasted like everybody else, you make the loving choice to be a loving presence to the image bearers in your midst. When I think of salt and light, I think about you. I think of you in this room who are in a classroom taking a test. And I know some of you have taken several today and you'll be taking several this week. And if your college experience is anything like mine, you'll be surrounded by people who are cheating. But because you're being salt and light, you're going to take the test honestly and with integrity. And I think about you. I think of you who are not hooking up in a hookup culture, but are honoring Jesus and your future spouse with your body. I think of you in this room who are not going to college simply to make lots of money so you can get a big house and a fast car and a life of luxury and ease. You're here because you are sensitive to the needs of the world and you're curious how you can help. You're not afraid of moving towards suffering and you're willing to enter into difficult situations because that is what salt and light is good for. And you want to bring salt and light into painful and dark places. I think of you. I think of you who use your light not simply to call attention to your own giftedness, right? Look at how awesome I am, right? Getting all the lights focused on you. But you use your light to spotlight and celebrate the good that you see in other people and to spotlight and celebrate what is good around you. You're generous in that way. You use your salt and your light to to accentuate the flavors and to celebrate the flavors and to encourage and congratulate People around you. And I see you doing it. I think about you. I think, all, I think of all of you in this room who don't just love the folks in this room, but you're, op- you're open to opening your life so that they can love you in return. Sometimes we do that, right? It's like, oh, I really want to love people, but we don't actually let people love us. I think being salt and light requires both. And I think of all of you worshiping, protecting preserving and serving others in Jesus' name. You all are the salt for the earth. You all are light for the world. Let's pray.